I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. And today I'm speaking with Pooja Bhatia, who has a piece in the latest issue of the LRB on the Haitian Revolution, when the movement for black liberation made its world historical debut. It's a review of three books, The Common Wind, Afro-American Currents in the Age of the Haitian Revolution by Julia Scott, Maroon Nation, A History of Revolutionary Haiti by John Henry Gonzalez, and Black Spartacus, The Epic Life of Toussaint Louverture by Sudhir Hazari Singh. Hello Pooja, and thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. So maybe to begin, you could tell the story of of what happened in August 1791. Yeah, there had been uh, slave insurrections throughout what was then called Saint-Domingue because it was a French colony. And there had been slave insurrections before that moment. And they were usually quashed pretty quickly. But in the years leading up to up to 1791, basically, they were gaining they were gaining force. Um, Part of that has to do with the fact that the French Revolution, which started in 1789, sort of opened up this kind of chasm between what the French were saying about Enlightenment ideals and what was going on in Saint-Domingue, which was that you know, slaves were, it was, it was basically one of the most extremely brutal uh, versions of slavery uh, or black slavery in the world. So, you know, life expectancy on the plantations was something like 37 years and the death rate was, you know, five or 6%. Basically it became, it became for a lot of slavers, it became cheaper to, import new slaves, new labor from Africa than it was to keep their existing slaves alive. So you have to, there's like this sort of backdrop of alarming conditions in which people who were treated like property uh, were dying. And so that, that, that there were two consequences of this. So one consequence was that, one consequence I imagine was that uh, the enslaved had very there were few reasons not to rise up. Um, that's what I imagine. And the other, the other consequence, which is better documented, is that something like on the eve of the slave revolution, there were some extraordinary high percentage of slaves were were first generation. I guess you could say they had uh, been torn from their homelands and their networks of kin, and many of them also had you know direct experience of of fighting in their homeland. So you have this, uh, you basically have a lot of potential energy in a way. And so, you know, it started, it started in the north of Haiti and it was about 10,000 people who 
rose up and it grew over the next few months. This was a kind of a flame that caught and, and, you know, it was also, it was intersecting in very interesting and sort of changeable ways with the news that was coming from France, right? Which is, was about the equal rights of men. And was it, was it led from the beginning? Was Toussaint Louverture leader of the of the of that first insurrection in the north of Haiti, or was he, did he come to prominence later? Was he more of a Napoleon figure, as it were? He came to prominence later. So, I believe in around seventeen ninety three or so. There are. It's not known whether Toussaint was there at the. There was a um, basically a ceremony at Bois at which supposedly the the slaves plan their insurrection. And it's not known whether Toussaint was there. And in fact, it seems like he wasn't one of the leaders of this insurrection for a few years, probably not until 19 or 1793 or 1794 did he kind of emerge as the center of it. And is that initial meeting is presumably undocumented? How is that known about? That's a good question. There wouldn't have been minutes, as it were. <laughs> no minutes. <laughs> That's a really good question. I actually don't know the answer to that. Because I suppose it's one of those sort of interesting things about so many spontaneous uprisings of all kinds and how how organised they are in advance and how much they sort of develop their own momentum and, and things which begin leaderlessly. And... Like what makes, what makes it sort of um, catch. Yeah. So in Julius's, in Julius Scott's book, he doesn't really, you know, he's writing about, he's writing about what was happening around that time on the seas and in ports and the way that news of this kind of emancipatory potential spread. So, I mean, there is the case that in his book, he's, he writes about how, you know, this uprising in Saint-Domingue was serious business for not just for other sort of planters or plantation owners and slavers on uh, in Saint-Domingue, but also throughout the Caribbean. So Jamaica and Cuba are both just, you know, hours away from Haiti by the boats that they had at the time. And so what was happening in Jamaica is that they were trying to, you know, the government officials were really trying to suppress any mention of what had happened in August 1791 because word just, word would travel among these islands. And so they, you know, they were told, they were told not to mention it. Private correspondence was censored. I mean, it actually was self-censored, I believe. So Scott unearthed these letters just being like, I I forget the exact phrases that they used, but they would say there's something happening. There's thing that we can't really talk about. And so they took all of these pains to keep the news of the of the insurrection in August 1791 from their own slaves because they didn't want that kind of flame of liberty to to spread. But Scott documents that by September of that year, the incident had made its way into like sort of the songs that slaves were singing in the fields. They added a verse about about the revolution or about the insurrection. So it wasn't very easy to keep news from traveling. 
even then, even though we, you, it wasn't a case of shutting down Facebook, as it were, but the, um, <laughs> but the, <laughs> the 18th century equivalent of that. And, and it happened quite quickly, right? That the um, the ones that the enslaved people they rose up, and and at what point did the did the planters lose control? Lose control of the of the colony. They lost control pretty quickly, right? So there's this initial, the initial uprising gathers force, it gathers people, and uh, you know within three months. It's the numbers of people who are rising up has grown like eight times over. So, and a lot of planters just fled. They left. And because France didn't, maybe they did more, more than this, but the, the sort of the French expeditionary force or the French army that was sent to, to take back the colony, that wasn't until 10 years later. Right. So, I mean, is that, so what happened in that? So what you have happening then, you have some periods of, quiet. But what you have happening then is that France, Britain, and Spain are all like vying for control of Saint-Domingue. The Spanish do control the eastern side of it, but, you know, they're basically engaged in, in a battle for this very, very valuable colony. And they're using, you know, formerly enslaved people as proxies 1794 is when Toussaint, who had been working with the Spanish, he flips his allegiance and his troops over to the French. And, you know, they had actually done, I mean, in 1793, it wasn't throughout the colonies, but in 1793, France said no more slavery in Saint-Domingue. 1794, Toussaint goes over to the French side and then over the next five years, I'd say he, you know, he's working for the French and he considers himself French. But, you know, he's like throwing off, he's trying to throw off like French oversight. He's trying to gain as much independence for Saint Domingue as he can within this colonial framework. And it's in 1801, Toussaint issues a constitution, and Napoleon views this as just a sort of aggrandizement of power. And he feels very threatened by it. And that's, you know, 1801 is when he sends Leclerc over for this latter phase of the war. And that, and so in Leclerc, he was the French, he, Charles Leclerc was the, the French general who led that expedition. And Toussaint was captured and taken back to France. But the French lost, didn't they? Because in 1804, Haiti declared independence and... <laughs> and there it was. They basically tricked him. Leclerc kind of lures him to a meeting on false pretenses. And it's there that Toussaint is arrested, along with his family and sort of shipped to shipped to France. But the movement, the movement continues, right? And it's it's really complicated because at that point, the leaders, the the men who would sort of take who would sort of take Haiti to its independence, who would uh, basically declare Haiti the first black republic, because um, you still have a, a couple more years at this point, were men who had betrayed Toussaint, arguably. That's what it seems like has happened. So at least, at least, I mean, there's controversy over it. Yeah, because got, I mean, the popular, the popular idea of Toussaint Louverture, you know, is, is a great hero. And the title of Sudhir Hazari Singh's book, Black Spartacus, The Epic Life, 
suggests. And as you say in the piece, he's an icon of black liberation. Wordsworth wrote a sonnet to him. His remains are now interred at the Pontignan. There have been movies about him. But the truth, as, as Harry Singh's text, rather than his title, makes plain, is, is rather more complicated, isn't it? Because we, ha- we have this idea, the popular idea is the enslaved people rose up, revolted, Toussaint led them, they threw off the yoke of slavery. And, but actually, after that happened, a lot of them continued working in the f- working on plantations right and and were coerced to work in plantations and even though they weren't officially designated slaves right their situation wasn't that much to someone who was who was doing that work that might not have felt that different from from when they were officially enslaved yes i think that's absolutely the case and they were very uh, there's this other book uh maroon nation by john henry gonzalez that you know i mean sort of documents how how sensitive the leaders of what was to become Haiti or what had recently become Haiti were were to the kind of implements of slavery. So, you know, they wouldn't use whips, they wouldn't use shackles, but they could use vines to kind of beat, to lash the slaves. Or not, sorry, at that point, they're cultivators. Uh, it can be kind of hard to distinguish, but they would use, they would use, they would use vines to lash the... The freed, the emancipated workers. Exactly. And then, and then if you were, if you had the kind of temerity to suggest that this looked, this new regime looked a lot like the old regime, then you could be arrested. I think that it's important to kind of look at it in the con in like the geopolitical context. So what was going on for Toussaint, Dessalines, Christophe, and to a lesser extent, Pétion, um, was that... I'm sorry, and they're, they're Dessalines, Christophe, they're the, after he had gone to France, they were the people who took over. They were, yeah, were later right, in exactly. Okay. So they both, you know, they both declared themselves at various points, you know, rulers for life of Haiti um, in one way or another. So all of them were incredibly scared that Haiti would be recaptured, right? That Haiti would lose its independence. And then what would happen after that would be, would be the reinstitution of slavery. Because you have to remember that, (laughs) you know, uh, Haiti was the first country to permanently abolish slavery, at that time, 1804, in the United States, uh, we had Thomas Jefferson as president who had slaves, who managed to write a Declaration of Independence that said, you know, all men are created equal. But it was clear who that he wasn't talking about black people. And, you know, you didn't, I, I believe in the UK, the abolition of the slave trade wasn't until 1807, right? Yeah, exactly. Definitely later. Yeah. So the the leaders of the of Saint Domingue, the leaders of Haiti, were legitimately frightened that these greater Atlantic powers would reinvade and reenslave the vast majority of the people who lived there. So what they wanted to do was to basically generate foreign exchange to to provide for their defense against reinvasion. So the way that they did that, the way they knew how to do that was sugar, right? So sugar cultivation at that time was, I mean, the way that they became a sugar power 
was by uh, these this extremely brutal form of slavery. And so those kinds of labor practices did not go over very well among the people who had who had risen up. And they, they found ways around it, right? That the, Gonzalez's book, he talks about the, the ways that people, I mean, they stopped, they ran away, they started cultivating land right. for their own sakes and grew other things. And Right. He, he argues that the, the major achievement of the Haitian Revolution, it came later. It came, you know, with the death of Henri Christophe in 1820, which he sees as the last sort of nail in the coffin of the plantocracy and the kind of permanent triumph of what he calls a counter-plantation system. And, you know, what what happened is that people went to the mountains. They were, they went to the mountains, they went to places where they couldn't, you know, their property, their lands, or the land that they were working could not be commandeered by soldiers. It could not be, you know, taxed by government officials. And it couldn't be, it wasn't really suitable land for sugar cultivation either. So that's why uh, Gonzalez calls Haiti a maroon nation, maroon meaning runaway slave, but it's kind of a, it's kind of a word that can connote all sorts of resistance. And he describes a lot of the strategies, not just running out to the mountains, but also literally uh, planting crops that grow underground so that, you know, a tax collector who's coming by can't really see all the things that are growing in this plot, which is, which is really interesting. In terms now, I mean, what crops are grown in Haiti now? A lot. I mean, a lot grows in Haiti. So I think that I think it's one of my biggest surprises when I got there, when I went the first time I went there was just like how green and how fertile it was, because we're sort of we're told, you know, I mean, deforestation is a huge problem in Haiti, but that's, I mean, it's still a tropical country, right? And it still has this amazing, an amazing uh, sort of cultural ethos of cultivation. So while it is not self-sufficient uh, in food production, it's, you know, Gonzalez argues that it's not because of the quality of the land or some lack of skills among, you know, Haitian cultivators. Uh, so what what grows there now? I mean, you can get in terms of starches, you can get there's breadfruit, <laughs> yams, manioc, which are all started to be grown as part of the counterplantation system. I mean, I suppose the question is: is that the counterplantation system that he describes developing, and is is, is that is that still in effect? Or I mean, are, are there sugar plantations there still? There aren't sugar plantations, but there's something else, right? So. Haiti still imports a ton of rice from larger countries like the United States that can subsidize uh, their farmers in a way that Haiti doesn't, right? So probably the most popular starch in Haiti is rice, and it's a specific type of rice. It's the type of rice, it's like white rice, um, and it comes from the United States usually or um, other countries that do mass agriculture. And is that because of as were, aggressive practices by the United States yeah. to export it? That went, And did that begin in the 20 years that Haiti was occupied by the US, sort of officially occupied by the US in the 20th century, or is it a... I mean, that's a good question. 
If I had to guess, I would guess that it happened around the 1950s, 1960s, um, or it started happening around then. And then it kind of gained force. It gained momentum as in the United States, like you had a lot of consolidation of small farms here. Um, And, you know, you get these big agribusinesses that end up getting a lot of government subsidies and they need, you know, markets for their for their overproduction, basically. And is I mean, there's coffee and and bananas and those those big crops that sort of United Fruit and so on, those big American, do they grow those kinds of things in Haiti? Is it one? So that's such good questions. Um, So they don't anymore. There are, I mean, there are bananas all over the place. There are papayas. There are all sorts of like, you know, tropical fruits. But the only one that is exported in any real quantity is mango. And that's a, that's a very small, it's quite a small export, actually. But Haitian mangoes are delicious. You can get them in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> and those are not that's not like that's not like united that's that's actually interesting actually we just talk about the mango industry so what happened with the mango industry is that you can't really have there aren't really plantations or orchards or groves there's not like mass cultivation of mango in haiti what there is instead are something that's very similar to what gonzalez describes right these like sort of farms in which uh you know they're very small plots of land. They're more like uh, gardens, right? Um, they call them jardins. And, you know, people will have, you know, a few mango trees in on their property. And then come, you know, between April and July, there are, you know, they have like hundreds and thousands of mangoes. And so they end up, you know, they end up selling them to local uh, companies basically not foreign owned and then those companies are like in a loose association and they together work with the United States government to get the mangoes um, you know they have to go through a whole process of like irradiation or something like that to get rid of fruit flies so this is really interesting I hadn't made that connection before but um but yeah the one the number one sort of agricultural export from Haiti is, a whole bunch of it's like it's deeply decentralized. Okay, and that could be seen as a legacy of the this counter plantation. That, yeah, certainly. And that sort of practice and the hiding underground, and that ties in with Julia Scott's book, doesn't it? In a way that if Hazari Singh's book is up to a point demystifying the cult of of Toussaint, that Scott's more interested in the people who disappeared, who ran away, who are hard to trace, who who didn't. Who are, you know not the celebrated people, the, the the masterless people of the of the Caribbean, and one of the amazing things about this book is that he it's his PhD thesis that he wrote in the eighties, right? And that it didn't get actually it wasn't published until a couple of years ago. It wasn't published until a couple of years ago. Yeah, it had been circulating among this growing field of Atlantic historians. And, you know, it'd been, you know, sort of Xeroxed in the 80s and then PDF'd and I don't know, the starting in the 2000s. Um, there was even a conference about this unpublished dissertation back in 2008, which was 10 years before its publication. And then I, I don't know the whole mythology of it, but um, apparently an editor at Verso was looking for 
things that should be published and uh, looking for manuscripts and, um, you know, was told by some of his sources about this, this book. And that's, I mean, it's interestingly in keeping with its, with its subject, isn't it? I mean, it's a kind of, the, the book is that there's manuscripts circulating in this yeah, unofficial way, definitely. like, like the, the people that wrote it. Yeah. Definitely. And when did, did you read it? In PDF, as it were. When did you No, no. I didn't read it until it was published in 2018. So you've written other pieces for the LRB on Haiti. There's an interview with Jean-Bertrand Aristide in 2012, a year after he returned to Haiti from exile in South Africa, having been deposed by a coup d'etat in 2004, um, and then another piece in 2013 on the the devastating earthquake that hit Port-au-Prince in January 2010. And I wonder, how did the interview with Aristide come about? I mean, was it was it easy to get an interview with him? Or was it? <laughs> no. <laughs> wow, that was, this is like going way back. Okay, so 2011, this was 2011. He came back in 2011. So I was doing freelancing in Haiti. And I had lived there for several years at that point. And I was told that, uh, you know, I mean, there were the, Duvalier. So Jean-Claude Duvalier, who was known as Baby Doc, returned from exile to Haiti about a year after the earthquake. So in January 2011. And after that happened, there was all sorts of talk. I mean, there had been a lot of talk for a while that Aristide was going to come back. But certainly after you had the return of Jean-Claude, um, who was... Where, where, where had he been? He'd been in France, I believe. And then Aristide had been, you know, he had been overthrown or ousted in a coup that was certainly supported by some arms, at least of the United States government. He uh, had been flown to, I think, the Central African Republic first and then eventually found exile in Mbeki's South Africa. So... So Aristide had been living in Pretoria in 2011. He'd been living in Pretoria for almost seven years. And in the spring of that year, there were all sorts of rumors that he was going to come back to Haiti. And as a freelancer, I was told that if I, you know, I had sources and one of the sources told me that if I could manage to get myself from Haiti to Johannesburg, then the source would arrange for me to return on the plane that carried Aristide back, which was going to be, you know, I think it was ended up being a private plane owned by the, no, no, it was a, it was a South African plane. So that's what I was told. You know, I, I begged my friends for frequent flyer miles. <laughs> I had like no money at all. And, um, you know, they, they were so kind. You know, it took me like 20 hours to get there. And I get there and there are a couple there, you know, he has a, he has several other people, journalists that are there that want to document his return to Haiti. And long story short, it turns out that there was no seat on the plane for me back to Haiti. (laughs) So I ended up like maxing out my credit cards to buy a terrible flight that takes like 25 hours to get there. Meanwhile, there's, you know, there's an election. I think there are legislative elections happening that weekend, which I'm supposed to cover for some outlet. And as a result, 
I mean, I did get to meet Aristide and spoke with him for a little bit in Pretoria before the plane left. And then when I got back to Port-au-Prince, you know, as a kind of consolation prize, I guess, um, you know, I got to, I got, I got, I was allowed to meet with him. He wasn't meeting journalists. He wasn't talking to them on the record. And so, yeah, that's how, that's how my conversations with Aristide took place. Yeah. So it was, um, not easy. So, and if you hadn't gone to South Africa and missed his plane, you'd never have got to go to his house in, exactly. in Haiti. So it was all <laughs> worth it. Um, the Aristide, I mean, he is sort of an amazing figure, isn't he? That the way that, that as a priest under, under the Duvalier regime and that sort of the Duvalier dynasty, father and son, is sort of among the more notoriously awful regimes of the, anywhere of the, of the 20th century. And he, Survived that, and then he came and he was he's president twice briefly in the nineties, and then again in the two thousands. And he he came to be seen certainly among leftists and in, in the US and and outside Haiti as this sort of great hope emancipatory figure. Right. But once he came to power, because of the realities of governing as much of it as anything else, people were disappointed or disillusioned in him. Is that? But I mean, from I think so. But this is all very much an outside of sort of view that from within. I mean, how did, how did and how do Haitians feel about about Aristide? I think that there are there are different realities. People in Haiti, just like people in the United States, inhabit different political realities. And like there are at the time that I was writing, at least, and keep in mind that was you know almost that was eight years ago. Uh, it seemed to me that there were a lot of people who believed that Aristide was kind of you know. Uh, a savior incarnate. And there were a lot of people who believed that Aristide was, uh, you know, an appendage of the devil. And it's, it's been interesting this year to sort of, to learn a bit about here QAnon. Apparently some people in QAnon believe that Democrats get a kind of energy, or Hillary Clinton in particular, gets a kind of energy from drinking the blood of children. Like similar sorts of mythologies uh, abounded about Aristide as well. So you have, you know, two different completely like political societies ostensibly under in one polity, which is weird. And the, and the things that he did, I mean, he sort of famous, he, he abolished the Haitian military, which seems, yeah, you know, years ahead of defund the police, as it were. The um, another thing, so was he more popular with the poor than the rich? Is that a very crude? Yeah, I think that's I think that's very fair to say. <laughs> I think that's very fair to say. And I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you know, he abolished the military. I mean, the point was the deal with the military. Why does Haiti need a military, right? The only reason Haiti needed a military was to like suppress its own poor, which is very similar to like what we're seeing here with, you know, defund the police, abolish the police. Like, why do we need a militarized police here in the United States? And also that kind of sort of the thing about the UN peacekeeping force, which I'm probably going to mispronounce, Minusta, Minusta? Yeah, Minusta. Minusta, okay. Which was brought in after Aristide's ouster, is that right? Yeah, I mean, 2004. And that, after the, and that after the earthquake in 2010, that there was a cholera outbreak. Right. And it turned out that the cholera had been brought by UN peacekeeping troops right. from Nepal is that right uh yeah not they were from Nepal but the cholera had, had they traced the strain of cholera exactly, and it had to exactly, be the UN, exactly. Yeah. which sort of points up like it's just like tragedies upon tragedies right like because you have these 
Nepali, you have all these like soldiers who are coming from places, uh, you know, they're coming from places as a way uh, their countries are basically selling them to the UN to like do military duty uh, in a place like Haiti and basically at the United States' bidding. Anyway, so the thing about the cholera outbreak was that, you know, I think after the earthquake with a lot of people living in these um, IDP camps. Internally displaced people. Right. Um, with, you know, really terrible sanitation. There were a lot of fears among um, public health experts that there would be some sort of terrible communicable disease um, that would spread through these um, IDP camps. Um, And it turned out that when the communicable disease came or the infectious disease came, it came far from Port-au-Prince in a place that hadn't really been affected by the earthquake and was brought by the United Nations peacekeeping force because of inadequate sanitation and inadequate like sort of screening of its personnel. And that's ba- that was bad enough, but what made it immeasurably worse was that the UN really just kind of stonewalled. It stonewalled at first. It's, well, it denied and then it stonewalled inquiries. And then when there was a actually a lawsuit against the United Nations, it wouldn't even accept service of process because it claimed that it was immune, even from acts of, you know, gross negligence and or recklessness, which is a real problem, right? I mean, this is like... If its job is to enforce international law, as it were. Right, 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 right. But it is a, it's above the law. <laughs> And there's another, I mean, a parallel that I'd possibly far-fetched, I don't know, but it seems to be um, reading your piece that, that the French general who was dispatched to subdue Louverture's uprising in 1801, uh, Charles Leclerc, died of yellow fever, along with yeah. half, if not most, of the French troops. And this it's a, it seems to be, the, it's very similar to that cholera outbreak, but it seems to be in some ways with the UN yeah, soldiers. I, I don't mean, know. you know, the history of, like, disease and war fascinating. I mean, in this case, like, I think that um, historians argue that Toussaint and Desalines very much believed that, you know, they kind of, they were, they felt that if they could, even though the French had more men and had more sort of military, more ships, certainly more military might, more organization, if the Haitians or if the, if the San Domingans could uh, sort of outlast them and make it like like take them through the rainy season, then the yellow fever would be on their side. So it became the disease actually became a kind of um, a tactical component of um, their plans. Sticking with the disease for now, the the COVID nineteen pandemic that going by official numbers that Haiti is doing much better than the US or the UK. It appears not to be to have so far to have avoided a second wave, to have had relatively few officially recorded cases and deaths. And it seems, and it has in the place of many other countries, Nicaragua and, and you know, the countries have dealt with it rather better than others. Nicaragua dealt, seems to have dealt with it well, Honduras hasn't and so on. So the idea that sort of in that way that the US, that the wildfires in California and Trump refusing to concede the election and the, the pandemic out of control, that somehow the way that People, the U.S. were looking to Haiti with its disasters in upon disaster in 2010. There's, you know, your piece in 2013 was, was, you know, someone said, "What's next, locusts?" But in some respects, that almost looks 
has been reversed somehow. That right. it's the, the US is the failing state with the, right. with the wildfires and the out of control pandemic. And how does the US look from Haiti? I've gotten quite a lot of, um, I think I didn't quite expect this year to get so many sort of check-ins from my friends in Haiti um, asking if we were okay. You know, first the COVID <laughs> and then, um, in, you know, I live in Northern California and there we've had terrible wildfire season really like we couldn't, it wasn't really safe to go outside for an entire month. My parents who live in the Midwest were, you know, amid COVID and a terrible heat wave, their power was knocked out by a storm, you know, treat by a freak storm, extreme weather events. Um, and so, you know, they had to go, you know, they can't really, it's, our houses are not really built for, uh, houses in the Midwest are not really built for extreme heat. Um, without air conditioning, right? And so I, it's, uh, and then uh, we have this election. Basically, my friends in Haiti have been checking on me a lot, and I didn't quite anticipate in 2010 that living in Haiti would sort of prepare me in a way for living in America 2020. Pooja Bhatia, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Tom. It's been a pleasure. You can read Pooja Bhatia's piece in the latest issue of the LRB along with Julian Barnes on Degas, Jacqueline Rose on Freud and his daughter, and Colm Tobin, alone in Venice. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.